Well, this is our uh, final uh, section for today, and it's following the book. Um, we're looking at both um, uh, service users and uh, educators' perspectives on this question of critical psychotherapy. And first, we've got uh, Tom Cotton. Tom's a psychotherapist and filmmaker, um, and he he did his doctorate recently. He's doing his doctorate rather <laughs> um, uh, at uh, the Research Centre for Therapeutic Education at Roehampton. And uh, Tom's really going to explore with us the personal versus the medical medical meanings uh, in in breakdown treatment and recovery from schizophrenia. Tom. Thank you. Uh, can everyone hear me okay at the back? Thank you. Um, I think the first thing to say is um, I have a problem with the word user. What does it mean? What is a service user? It implies a separation between uh, professional and users' uh, perspectives. Somehow they might be different. Obviously they are. But what is the difference? Um, going back to an earlier idea, I think David was talking about um, the importance of therapy um, as uh, a component of what people do in training as part of their work, an exploration of their own uh, minds in order to work with others. Um, so in that sense, as therapists, are we not all users? Why do we need to make a distinction? So... The chapter that I'm going to talk about arose from a piece of doctoral research, as uh, Dell mentioned, at the Therapeutic Centre of uh, uh, for the, the Research Centre for Therapeutic Education. That's a mouthful, um, which explored eight people's experiences of schizophrenic breakdown treatment and recovery. Now, in order to discuss the implications of what emerged in this research. For what we're calling a critical approach to psychotherapy, I'm going to start with an outline of how the research came about, the methods used, some of the findings and the conclusions reached, uh, before coming more specifically um, to how all of these ideas uh, might relate to what's being discussed here today. But a note before I start, because the medical meaning of schizophrenia is held in contention, I would like you to imagine inverted commas around the word every time it is used, uh, as well as such words as symptoms. Um, I should also say that Rachel, uh, who is the respondent today, um, is not only a respondent for this segment, but she was also a participant in the research. Uh, so brings a unique twin perspective. Um, so there's no pressure then <laughs> on either of us. Uh, so that we can consider the significance of meaning what follows, I'd like to start with a three-pronged conclusion reached in the research before, before going on to detail how this conclusion uh, came about. I think in some ways these conclusions might speak about uh, what lies beneath the surface of the interaction between the patient and the physician roles that Hugh was talking about earlier. So the first conclusion um, was that schizophrenic breakdown might be described as a crisis of what I've referred to as personal meaning. And addressing this crisis seems to be an important driver of recovery. Secondly, the knowledge underpinning what I've called medical meaning of schizophrenia is in itself in crisis, not least because it fails to take the first crisis into account. 
And thirdly, when these two crises collide within a medical approach to treatment, which I argue is characterized by an impulse to control, the resultant domination of personal meaning may produce a third crisis, what the psychoanalyst Christopher Bollas calls a long-term broken self. In other words, what DSM calls the acute phase of schizophrenia might, in part at least, arise from the way that personal meaning is treated in treatment itself. So I'll just come to an overview of the, uh, of the research study. It had its roots in a Wellcome Trust-funded uh, documentary film called There is a Fault in Reality, uh, which explored the experiences of three people with a schizophrenia diagnosis. Um, and to add a slightly subversive note to the discussion on capitalism that we were having earlier, um, you can purchase a copy of that in the gift shop uh, afterwards, if you so wish. <laughs> um, now, if the film could be reduced down to two thin- themes, they might be as follows. The first is voices and other schizophrenic phenomena often seen a symbolic or metaphorical expression of traumatic life experience. The second is, in addressing and working through this meaning, recovery from schizophrenia is possible. None of this is new, of course, especially if you're familiar with some of the ideas that I'll come to shortly. However, I was struck by how psychotherapy seemed both an important facilitator in the recovery process, in many of the stories I came across, yet crucially, aspects of it also seemed an obstacle, as did aspects of medical treatment, particularly when characterized by the suppression of personal meaning. To give you a brief example, in the film, Jackie Dillon, chair of the Hearing Voices Network in England, uh, recalls being hospitalized in her mid-twenties. When she told her psychiatrist that the terrifying visions that she was experiencing were connected to the experience of being sexually abused as a child, she was patiently told that these were, in fact, the symptoms of schizophrenia, delusions. This was because... In her words, what I was experiencing was never considered to be a natural and human response to things that had happened in my life. Moreover, as she did not accept this medical explanation, she was deemed to lack insight into her own illness, itself one of the diagnostic signifiers of schizophrenia. What forces might be at play then in this Kafkaesque domination of meaning? Now, digging deeper into this question brought me back to my own experience, long before my career in film and then psychotherapy, back to a a nightmarish LSD-induced breakdown in my early 20s. During a three-month stint in a psychiatric hospital, zonked out and puffed up on medication, I'd become preoccupied by similar questions. Revisiting this experience was crucial in fostering what the Finnish psychiatrist Jarko Alanen calls an understanding approach to psychosis, in which the therapist or researcher's ability to access their own unconscious psychotic domain is central. At the same time, my work as a project manager of a residential therapeutic community, for those with a diagnosis, brought me into daily contact with the real politic of the mental health system. Section tribunals, community treatment orders, depot injections and secure wards. These four sometimes conflicting perspectives of filmmaker, manager, therapist and ex-patient came together under the umbrella of heuristic methodology in which a personal quest for knowledge arises from within the researcher's life experience and forms a question 
that has been a personal challenge and puzzlement in the search to understand oneself and the world in which one lives. So with this methodology in place and the empirical aspect of the research completed, I'm skipping over that slightly later uh, now, but I'll come back to that later, the meaning conflict became reframed with the help of Heidegger's existential phenomenology as one between personal and medical meaning. It would be helpful now to look at these terms in a little bit, a little bit more detail so that we can understand the three areas of crisis referred to in the conclusions that I began with. So, for Heidegger, being in the world is the primary concern when examining human experience above any materialistic observations about individuals as what he calls person things. This latter present at hand view of objects tells us about our experience of the world, less about the, our experience of the world than a ready at hand view, where meaning is derived from the way in which we use those objects. So Gelvin, who provides a useful guide to Heidegger's work, notes that this ready-hand view turns the objective scientific view of people, thing, people things on its head, because within it, we do not first ask what a man is and then wonder what it means. Rather, we begin by asking what it means to be a man, and then we decide what a man is, and that's absolutely central, I think. Writing from a critical psychiatry perspective that draws on this Heideggerian view, Pat Bracken argues that this primacy of meaning lies at the core of the uniquely human capacity for self-interpreting. Personal meaning, then, could be said to be intimately bound up with one's personal experience of being in the world. To adapt Gelvin's example, the latch to one person's front door may be the lock to another's prison. On this understanding, the voices that one person hears may mean something entirely different to another. As Rom uh, and uh, Maris Rom and Sandrish's collection of um, stories, uh, Living with Voices, illustrates, those who have recovered from schizophrenia tend to conceptualize voices as being on a continuum with thought and to regard the content of both their thoughts and their voices as meaningful expressions of traumatic life experience. This relationship between trauma and psychosis is supported by a growing body of research, noted by critical psychologists John Reed and Richard Bentel in their landmark uh, 2012 article in the British <laughs> Journal of Psychiatry. It's well worth reading. To suggest, then, that either the voices one hears or the thoughts that one has have a universal, non-personal meaning seems problematic, to say the least. However, it is precisely with this notion that DSM starts. In DSM, which I've used to define medical meaning, it assumes that the voices, uh, that voices and other symptoms of schizophrenia are the meaningless signs of a disease process. <coughs> this objective way of looking at schizophrenic experience leads one further away from what Heidegger would call the proper ontological meaning, of the experiencing person because the context of their use of their world has been excised. So coming back to Lang, which uh, was mentioned earlier, in his book The Divided Self, Lang illustrates the impact of these divergent meanings when he comments on Kripalin's presentation of a young man called Hans to an audience of students. Kripalin objectively explains how Hans' stuttering, rambling speech is a sign of his disease that he calls dementia procox, uh, a diagnostic forebearer of schizophrenia. Lang argues, in one sense, Hans's behavior is 
expressive of his existence and the meaning that he attributes to the world as being expressive of his way of being in it, then one is led to a radically different understanding of his situation. Moreover, Han's disturbance may be a manifestation of what Burston calls our inability or unwillingness to understand him. To explain someone's actions with medical meaning and to attempt to understand their personal meaning then are to see and to hear in radically different ways, according to Lang, both of which may then impact on the behaviour that is seen and heard. The way that meaning is either understood or imposed seems to have a radical impact then. For Heidegger, this plays directly into a care that either intervenes, which dominates another and takes over what is to be done by them, or a care that anticipates, which gives back to them what is authentically theirs, and so may help to set them free. And this requires a little bit of unpacking, I think. For Heidegger, to understand another is to see the meaningfulness of their world as a range of possibilities. I'm aware this is a term that we've talked about quite a lot today already. Beyond what he calls an enslaving actual. Now, this actual might be both the distress a person finds them in, or it may be the theoretical categories of thought used to explain the cause of that distress, psychological, psychiatric theories. To keep open possibility for oneself and another, and to anticipate the personal meaning that might emerge, is an essential act of care, because it offers freedom from a state of actual that might actually enslave, such as social norms, family dynamics, or indeed the theories that I just mentioned. Intervening care, meanwhile, may close down or dominate or explain somebody's personal meaning with the very same structures of actual within which they may be already tangled. With this in mind, I'll now draw draw on some of the findings to illustrate these dynamics of meaning and care and how they might play out in treatment uh, in the experiences of uh, the participants in the study. So, at first, it seemed that medical meaning diagnosis and treatment was reassuring for most people. It was a relief to feel that somebody knew what the problem was. For some, hospital was a secure refuge during this terrifying time of crisis, and medication dampened down troubling symptoms such as voices. However, a a feeling began to develop for many that the medical story presented a way of not thinking about complex underlying issues. So as Participa Day said, social workers, CPNs, doctors, my family, they were all really into the genetic explanation. Because the thing is about genetics, nobody's to blame. I understood myself as there is something wrong with me. Now this something is wrong with me narrative seemed to have a profound effect, as Participant G illustrates. Schizophrenia was seen as this arbitrary symptom of mental illness, a piece of biological bad luck to be endured rather than a complex or significant or meaningful experience to be explored. It was the beginning of this horrendous cycle of exhaustion and hopelessness and loss of self-respect. Three key factors seem to play into this cycle. Firstly, The something is wrong with me narrative seemed to mirror a self-loathing image associated with earlier traumatic experience and this deepened associated despairing feelings. Secondly, only the parts of the participants' experiences that stayed within the hermeneutic of the medical story were considered in the clinical encounter, which is absurd. 
This seemed to encourage a dissociation from the aspects of self that didn't fit this story. Thirdly, medical treatment focused on the suppression of symptoms. This was not only ineffective, it also seemed to deepen a sense of alienation from self. Because to believe that suppressing a symptom is helpful, one has to mistrust one's personal meaning associated with it. This meaning was then supplanted by a non-personal medical meaning disease concept, which left participants helpless and cut adrift from their own meaningfulness as participant F illustrated. After experiencing voices through the medical model for 20 years, they were just sort of a noise in my head, and I thought that I was psychologically flawed. (coughs) These examples of domination of personal meaning often mirrored traumatic childhood experiences, such as being controlled, abused, or made to question one's own reality. So much so that participant C felt that the medical concept of schizophrenia actually colluded with the abuse in that she felt that she was perceived as the problem, not the people who had abused her. Jackie Dillon notes the bitter irony. Her abusers told her that she would never be believed if she tried to tell anyone about what had happened to her, and the domination of her meaning seemed to fulfill this horrifying prophecy. Participant G described how the unwitting consequence of this treatment was that she took an aggressive stance against her own mind. This led, in her words, to a psychic civil war in which the initial voice she heard and was not troubled by multiplied into 12 voices that became stronger and more aggressive. Ironically, the consequence of this was that, as she said, my behavior and emotions just began to deteriorate so rapidly in hospital, but by the end... They couldn't have let me go. As a result, she felt, I think I went into hospital as a distressed, unhappy teenager, and I came out as schizophrenic. However, because this kind of domination is, as Heidegger puts it, tacit and remains hidden, such feelings may have no tangible root and so become further dissociated from their source. The passage from a prodromal, DSM's language, to an acute phase of schizophrenia might then be further encouraged by medical interventions such as medication, which when used to reinforce this domination, as Bolas puts it, tends to seal over the structuralized breakdown and unwittingly ensure its permanence. In essence, then, the combination of medical meaning and intervening care seems to compound feelings of depersonalization, derealization, and dissociation, the very same associated features of schizophrenic symptoms noted by DSM. Now, by contrast, being provided with the space to explore connections between experience, meaning, and symptoms, unconstrained by the clinician's theories and agendas, seem to support a transformation of terrifying internal states. This anticipating approach to care was not exclusive to psychotherapies, but was also found in peer support networks, relationships with social workers, families, and friends. To continue with participant G's story, the freedom to explore her experiences helped her to understand that the terrifying satanic voice that had grown in power when chemically and psychologically suppressed was in fact a representation of, in her words, the aspect of me that identified with the people who had harmed me and which felt, you deserved it because you're bad, you're dirty, you're you're cursed. But ultimately, that part of me also represented 
a part of me that had been harmed the most. And in that respect, he needed the most care and compassion, not suppression. In reconnecting traumatic experience with meaning, participant G found that the voice faded and never returned in visual form. Every time he came back, she said, he was calmer and he was kinder. He was the voice that caused me by far the most problems, but he was also the voice that held the key to the healing in him as well. In addressing the meaning of the trauma, it seemed that there was no longer a need for what Lacan might call a psychotic foreclosure. As participant C put it, it's kind of like the Matrix. Once you take the pill, you can't unsee this different world. And as much as I'd like to go crazy again, because it would be easier, I don't think I can ever spend eight months in hospital and believe I was schizophrenic. Now, we can grasp... We can grasp now why the meaning dynamic underlying medical treatment might create a disturbance in the patient that may in fact be a manifestation of our inability or unwillingness to understand them. In so doing, it might also, as Lang pointed out, perpetuate the very disease it purports to cure. We can also grasp why Bracken cautions that where psychotherapy is driven by this kind of urge to order and control, ever more efficient therapies can be expected to generate new forms of oppression and suffering. Yet it's just such a controlling, it is just such a controlling approach that NICE seems to embrace. For example, might adherence therapy, which claims to enhance compliance with medication, compliance, Could it be considered a form of psychotherapy or a form of control? Could this conception, uh, could NICE's um, uh, conception of uh, of CBT, which is its psychological treatment of choice for schizophrenia, um, which uh, it conceives as offering interventions, quote, that help patients reevaluate their perceptions beliefs or reasoning in relation to the target symptoms be a more more be designed as a more subtle form of control now while while art therapy and family therapy are recommended to a lesser extent and we should note here that psychoanalysis and counseling are actively not recommended by nice uh, existential therapies don't even get a look in Uh, they are expected to subscribe to a similar ethos. So if mainstream psychotherapy is expected to subscribe to an ethos in which personal meaning must be rationalized, suppressed, and shaped to a non-personal, universalized notion of healthy thought, then do we need to reserve the term critical psychotherapies uh, for critical psychotherapies that can keep open an anticipating space within which this meaning might be helped to unfold and develop. So if so, where might we start? In sympathy with Heidegger and Lang, uh, Ian Parker, who spoke earlier, notes that understanding how we come to stand where we are in our use of theory, rather than unquestionably filtering all we see through it, seems absolutely vital. This then might open up psychiatrized and psychologized theory to what emerges in practice. Seems obvious, why isn't it? In so doing, we might also appreciate how caught up we are in in the theories that we use in Heidegger's sense to uncaringly explain a person 
before we were able to understand their personal meaning. A post-existential thought, a notion that's developed at Roehampton and which draws on both Heidegger and Lang, might offer one way of keeping this possibility open, while resisting becoming embedded in the totalizing theories that treatment systems naturally lean towards. In opening up this kind of reflective critical space to what is found in practice, the personal meaning of those being both researched and treated could then be considered as not just admissible, but crucial data, and its facilitation could be seen as central to recovery. psychologist and psychotherapist working from a systemic and Lacanian perspective. She's also uh, an honorary senior research fellow at uh, Queen Mary's University of London. So Jay is, Jay's title of what she's going to talk is Systemic Means to Subversive Ends Maintaining the Therapeutic Space as a Unique Encounter. Jay. So I can just go. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. There you go. Brilliant. Okay. Hi. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Can you all hear me at the back? So wave frantically if my voice goes or anything like that. Um, I wanted to start off with um, a quote, um, and I'm slightly worried that the uh, Freud Museum bookshop might take this too literally, but I'm also not worried at all. And um, it's from Abby Hoffman um, from uh, his pamphlet "Steal This Book." Um, and the quote is the first duty of a revolutionary is to get away with it and the reason I chose this quote is partly because I guess one of the themes that I'm talking about is how embedded should we be in the most oppressive type of organisations where often the most displaced, subjugated people should be and at what cost and is that cost worth it That is still very much a question for me, and I'm sure for other people in this room. But the other reason why I chose this quote is um, Hoffman, you know, obviously that massive, brilliant activist, did all this kind of political theatre in the 60s and 70s, you know, introduced buffoonery as activism, all this stuff. Uh, And he saw these kind of students in the late 80s, And he basically said, you know, don't despair. It's not that the heyday is gone. You guys have got personal computers. Now, if any of you remember what personal computers were like in 1988, (laughs) then, you know, what what potential activism do we have? So what I'm going to talk about really is how we introduce, how we politicise new generations and especially kind of generations of trainees. So in terms of kind of the context, there are a few different contexts, one of which is the concern which many, many share of counselling psychology, which was kind of introduced as a way to kind of have a more political clinical psychology that still took psychotherapy seriously. Real, real concerns that basically the loss of that as it became easier and easier to buy into literally and practically things that would give money 
but produces produce the kind of practice that, practices that we're talking about today as very colonizing. A second of which was kind of a concern that the applicants that one gets to psychotherapy, less so to psychoanalysis, but certainly to all the applied psychologists, really have eaten in, as one would expect, the language of the day. So you can have a course that you know positions itself very, very clearly as kind of critical and existential and what have you, and you will have applicants coming in, amazing, year by year, more and more. They've done IAP placements. This is the future. And so I think there's real questions um, for us around that. And lastly, um, one of the influences really for thinking um, how we can get a kind of sort of practical, gritty um, method of producing space for uh, for more open dialogue was really kind of experiences working and uh, leading a integrative psychotherapy team in East London. Um, and finding that we were pitched against an equivalent team for the borough for CBT and for psychodynamic and for systemic. And what we found, which is really a very kind of common experience, is that we would get by far the most referrals, by far the most clients, um, and, you know, basically the kind of manualized approaches of the other treatments would mean that they weren't suitable, so they put them on the integrative list. And yet when it came to the stakeholders changing around different program types, they wanted to get rid of integrative because it wasn't in nice. Now, integrative for me is basically it's, you know, it's bottom driven, it's process oriented, it's actually knowing, you know, nothing really apart from um, uh, what one could take in as vague ideas before meeting with a client. It's really, I think, what most of us do. If you look at interviews with people from all the modalities, including psychoanalysis, when they are retiring, so in a way when they're kind of moving away from uh, a particular kind of sort of enclosed um, um, membership of an organization, they actually talk far more about, far less about doing modality-specific things and far more about the general skills, far more about learning from the patient, all the kind of indwelling tactic, tacit knowledge that we know works. And so I guess the question is, and this is a question for all of us, of course, today, how do we keep things open for that practice? Within this particular context, nothing new to many, many people here, but a first looming visit of the HCPC and a real, real problem in that we would have young blood coming in, very, very passionate, very, very critical, and they would have some training on courses that was, you know, really consistent with many of the ideas that we're talking about today, and then they could not find a placement or a supervisor for love or money that would allow any critical practice at all. Now, that often means any practice that isn't CBT. If you're lucky enough to get something that's not CBT, then you get a psychodynamic placement, but everyone is so kind of attacked and defended against that it is like the most psychodynamic placement in the history of the world because it has to be to keep a place. That is what our trainees are going into. So I guess one of my questions for us today is how do we develop, grow placements that actually can allow critical thinking rather than have split-off trainings often based on the kind of idealism of academics who are themselves a bit battered by changes in the academy, how can we do that so it's not split off so that we can develop 
people who are going to be really, really passionate about open dialogue spaces for clients in the future. And also linked with this is a real concern that on psychotherapy training courses, it's often the privileged, richer trainees who can, say, have to have a more conventional placement but can afford to pay for whoever they choose as a supervisor. That's a real, real problem. Often uh, the trainees who have had the most difficult, oppressed experience themselves will have to go into the kind of conventional placements where, yes, you might not get paid, but you'll get enough internal supervision, but it will be especially kind of full and enclosing with the colonising neoliberal language that we're kind of talking about today. So these are kind of some of the places um, that we were talking about. Um, and as many of us know, and as I think Phil <coughs> points out in the book, and we point out in the book many, many times, in psychotherapy and in the applied psychologies, we are kind of getting a lesser parallel experience of the colonization of the capacity to think that, of course, psychiatric patients have had writ large for decades and decades and decades we are getting a glimpse of what it feels not to be heard and I actually think that there is a possibility that we can twist that to use that to our advantage somehow hopefully we can think a bit more about why and I think in a way because of this parallel that as I say for psychotherapy is nothing compared to the experience of being incarcerated for months and years against one's will, at the same time, in a way, something that can feed our interests now, feed our aliveness, at a time that can feel very thanatonic for the psychotherapy professions, is actually to work more closely with the most amazing work that is going on in the (coughs) psychiatric survivor movement. Now, many of you will be very, very familiar with these things. I've just put a few there. Um, we've got the Hearing Voices Network, with, uh, which Rachel and, and, and I think Tom, through the filmmaking, are a great part of, you know, really an amazing emancipatory movement. We've got things like on Twitter, Neurobollocks, who... Um, <laughs> it's, 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 it's fantastic. I'm so jealous of his Twitter handle. Um, and he's, uh, he, he's uh, debunking pseudo-neuroscience... Uh, so you don't have to. Thank God, <laughs> we all say. Um, and then we've also got things like, we've got real successes. Yes, it is a very difficult moment for psychotherapy, but we've got things like, sorry, I don't know how to kind of sort of point on, on this, but we've got the Twitter campaign against the awful Halloween mad person masks, which actually led to them, thank goodness, being removed We've got things like, and this is the least liberal of them, it's not the school of life, she says. Um, we've got, we've got um, philosophy in the pub, which is actually a really kind of like, it's a really kind of sort of good bottom-up thinking organisation. We've got things like Eventbrite and Kickstarter that in a way can topple some of the hierarchies that have stopped thinking in our professions because it means that in a way people at any stage, if you've got a good enough idea, if you can get allies, if you can get comrades, you can actually get things going. You don't need an organisation in the way that one once did to kind of pay for the flyers and have the list and all that stuff. And we also have, in a way, supervision from psychiatric survivors, which is incredibly important, 
something like recovery in the bin, which is basically, a, um, excuse my French, fuck you, to the commodification of recovery as used in the NHS as a way to justify the closing down of services um, and also as a, as a way to um, kind of pedestal, pedestal psychiatric survivors in a certain way. You're the representatives that service user. You have to come and tell your story so we're all moved. Recovery in the bin, I think, is a wonderful kind of radical, OK, well, let's kind of shake that up. And everyone needs that in mental health psychotherapy. We need that in mental health. And there's also fantastic things like, um, um, uh, I think um, Ray, Rachel, is, is organising this, walking alongside an event um, on the 11th of July, um, which is basically going to um, um, look at how um, experts who've got lived experience and professionals can work together, thinking a bit about the power dynamics um, thinking uh, um, a little bit about how we can kind of progress beyond tokenism. I mean, for goodness, tokenism's kind of, you know, is, is going out of the back door anyway. But really exciting events like that. We have Eleanor Longdon, who does uh, did a talk on hearing voices. Four million people watched it. And so I think in a way, obviously, we don't want to be vampirically stealing the energy as if we could of the psychiatric survivor movement. But I also think at the same time we need to think, okay, well, there are some exciting things going on. And it is better, still terribly difficult, but I think probably most of us would say that little bit better to be in hospital under a CMHT. Now, in terms of ideology, now obviously there's no money and that brings different problems, but there is something there. I am afraid I've put up a plug for the Stratford event. Um, and just very, very quickly to go off my talk for a second, if you want to come to the action against uh, CBT putting in the job centre, it's on the 26th of July at 1.30, meeting at the Streatham Memorial Gardens. This, my job makes me depressed, cry, sick, anxious, is probably the least imaginative of an amazing kind of activist kind of set of ideas that they're going to do. And I think really it's the first rally against CBT as part of a managed care initiative, not CBT per se, but CBT to make people better citizens, citizens so they shut up. So there's exciting things going on, yet at the same time we all know that actually, you know, the kind of discourses that we're talking about continue to colonise the space within which distress is experienced and create it. So just one example, we have uh, this from some interviews that I did with families not long ago. We have uh, Jill and George. Jill is a, a 60-something mother. Um, George has a long-term history of uh, uh, multiple, over 20 psychiatric admissions. And here we have a standard piece of discourse. So Jill says, you do it because you're not well, George. That's why you do it. You do it because you're, 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 I'm not, don't get me wrong. You're not my, because you say he's unstable or he's a, and I go, mm, and Jill continues, suffers from a nervous complaint or whatever he suffers with. You're calling me mad. I say you're not mad. There's lots of people, they go in there themselves for their nerves. They've had a nervous breakdown or whatever it is, schizophrenia, whatever, they go in 
doesn't mean to say you're mad. It can be cured. And, Greg, if you carry on um, with your medication and whatever, do as you're told, you're all right. And George tries to say something. He goes, there's something else. And Jill goes, you're all right. And George continues, they say I'm schizophrenic. And Jill goes, but you won't. And then there's a pause. You've been told, I've been told, told by another hospital, that until you admit what you are, you will never get better. And George goes, I'm not going to admit it because I'm not a schizophrenic. I mean, brave George, but then he shuts up for 20 minutes. It's a research interview, so I don't kind of sort of intervene. This kind of in-the-corner, shut-up lifestyle that some of these monolithic ideas that shut down any capacity for investigation... That's something that in this type of interview, everyday experience, not just George, but also Jill are subject to. And also, though there are, you know, there's more responsibility because there's more power, often the psychiatric staff that are working with families. So we see here Jill trying desperately to account for, to find a way of protecting George from responsibility of the idea it's his fault. They're stuck with the idea that either it's his fault, he should have enough willpower, something you see again and again, and schizophrenia is used as a construct to kind of save. Even though, as we saw in the slide before, there is wonderful kind of critical thinking about psychosis. Um, You know, it is very, very easy to deconstruct. The evidence is appalling. Um, one can do that, and yet, though it's great in the Twitter sphere, though it's great when people go to teachings, we know it hasn't saturated into everyday conversations. And I guess this is the thing that I'm thinking about. How do we get involved outside the consulting room to change these? And so the idea with this was to develop kind of, in a way, meta-competencies to try and cheat the HCPC that were coming to kind of regulate a course to, in a way, to put in competencies of critical thinking. Now, again, that is problematic at some level, but once it was in there, actually all they could do was insist that the critical thinking, the critical placements were in there, otherwise fail, because they don't really, at some level, kind of sort of care about content. And the idea with that was to use really some kind of sort of um, ideas from systemic psychotherapy, ideas from activism, and also ideas from open dialogue. Now, open dialogue is very, very useful uh, at the moment, a little bit like mentalization. It's kind of one of those things where people put a signifier on something which people have been doing, you know, perhaps for decades and decades, and then they set it back to you as an RCT. Now, you know, kind of, um, uh, we can have our problems with that, but it can be useful to play the RCT game when the consequence is to say we need spaces where there are more, where there is more tolerance of uncertainty. Now, in a way, I mean, what is more central to pretty much all the psychotherapists than actually being able to stay with anxiety than in a way try to kind of push back what the other would have both parties be to actually then create room to see what emerges, what bubbles up. In a way, that's what all, all what our open dialogue is. 
but the evidence base can be useful to kind of, you know, bring in a, ba- a bit of Bakhtin, bring in a bit of the idea of kind of, you know, heteroglossia, let's go beyond fixed meaning, uh, and actually get kind of stakeholders to listen. Again, there is an ethical question. I really admire people, in a way, who refuse to play that kind of RCT game. And yet, part of my own formation has been working homelessness, working in NHS, all those kind of places, and and, and, and I can't ethically completely leave those spaces because that's often where the most oppressed people are. And that's something that, you know, obviously we all need to kind of think about kind of as individuals uh, in terms of what we do with our critical kind of beingness, if you will. Um, in a way, we know, and it's been alluded to earlier, there is this incredible history of activism that has happened in psychotherapy and the model for that is often something very kind of sort of similar to this, that we know that, you know, there have been different ideas really since Freud's time onwards. Really the movement then in social action thinking, be that feminist psychotherapy or what have you, is moving from the kind of alienated patient, the alienated client, the kind of patient on, on pills, if you will, um, to the idea of a kind of person-to-person therapy, then a move perhaps to emancipatory groups, and then a move to social action. And one of the things that I guess kind of we've been thinking about kind of um, sort of now is that how, in a way, we can have updates of that. And in a way, if we need updates, one of the things that we need to think about is working more and more actively with the wider discourses, with the psychiatric discourses, with the governmental discourses, and with how those kind of sink into, how those get soaked up to, in a way, micro-communications. You know, the referral letter for a service that uses language that will alienate and other such that disengagement is the only option because people know anger, where it's like, what were you doing there, what were you implying, will be pathologised. Yeah? Also, in a way, kind of moving beyond um, working with particular groups um, to um, interacting in cyberspace in the media. So really trying to kind of produce trainings where, you know, writing the first comment after the latest Daily Mail article you know, pathologising Lindsay Lohan for being borderline would be seen as an act. So really, in a way, to kind of think beyond the remits of open dialogue at the moment, which are changing NHS cultures, to thinking about how this is saturated, not just into the media, but also into charity-type organisations, like many of the minds, Mind and Camden excluded perhaps, that, you know, are playing the grants game, that are playing the CBT game, and to see that as a meaningful activity as transmitted to people who are coming into, uh, into psychotherapy. And also really in a way to kind of sort of take seriously as a task, and I agree with what Del was saying um, earlier, you know, you do qualitative research, you do an IPA, very, very few have any impact. And yet, in a way, kind of activism skills to kind of make room to try to produce space for what we believe in, how to get a grant, how to work with artists so that one can, in a way, kind of sidestep the whole social science stuff that, you know, would be too much compromise. Arguably, those skills are more useful for our desperate task to fight to create 
spaces uh, for meaning making to remain open. And with that, to kind of really kind of sort of kind of think with people um, about kind of what their own relationship should be to what, I can't say his name, I'm afraid, our, A-U-E-R, called code switching. So basically, actually, how much one should be able to kind of think both inside and outside of discourses that oppress in the interests of people who perhaps don't have that social capital to give them that social capital. Uh, I'll come back to that in a second. We were very, very kind of sort of keen to get people um, to get people kind of like really kind of sort of more involved with activism, like Mad Pride, like doing things like going to the People's Rally that hopefully everyone will be at next Saturday. Um, you know, to get people when they were going on placements, going out into council estates, speaking to local pastors about, about why people aren't interested in psychotherapy, you know, going out and getting lost and trying not getting killed in the crack den, you know, just to have that kind of sort of lived experience of being in the locality, to be able to have the power to question us, why are so many clinics not representative of, of what's going on uh, locally? And crucially with this, in a way, to try and produce a kind of slightly more activist-oriented generation to think very carefully about the transference to authority, the transference to knowledge, and the problems that we all have in, I think, all of the member organisations, all of the professional bodies, of really shutting down challenge um, from our juniors something that we really, really need to kind of sort of think about. If we do that within our organisations, in a way, how can we expect people to do that, um, influencing uh, at the psychosocial level? And we will kind of, in a way, get quite practical with this. So, for example, if you'll be going on a placement, there'd be some kind of deconstructionist-like questions to think about. So, arguably, um, you know, if one is going on a placement to work with um, psychosis, so-called schizophrenia, you know, to be able to (coughs) negotiate a position when the trainee hears, which of course you will hear, of course schizophrenia exists. The classic Mary Boyle rhetorical device used to shut down all thinking. And in a way to try and get people to think about how they can challenge kind of meaning, get thinking going, how they can join with professionals to produce space so that these big monolithic signifiers like diagnosis um, wouldn't shut down the whole system to something more complex. Um, And part of that was really kind of sort of trying to get people curious in the histories of, in a way, all the people who are involved in mental health. So, for example, um, there'd be things like kind of practical exercises where, you know, some trainees would have to go away over a week and research the history of social work, some would research the history of nursing, some would rehearse the history of psychiatry. So rather than being kind of like, sort of kind of, oh, evil psychiatrist who's out to oppress, I'm a psychotherapist, I, I believe in listening, I'm good to kind of deconstruct that stuff, to look at, for example, to, uh, things like how uh, psychiatry within medicine can be kind of looked down on, because basically if you're not cutting, what are you? And how some, perhaps some of those dynamics might affect how a psychiatrist would position himself in a team. 
So really the kind of things that we all do in the psychotherapy to get forensically fascinated in history and prehistories to try and get that thinking going in, uh, in kind of sort of wider systems. Uh, is that going to work? Um, and, okay, very quickly, lastly, what we'll do with that is really to try and get people to use play and reverence and evidence-based knowledge where it needs to be to try and get room for people like John, haven't got time to read the quote, unfortunately, to be able to have some space <coughs> to push things back enough to be able to hear either what the symptom is saying or hopefully what the client comes to say, but not just to do that for people who are stuck in the psychiatric system, also to do that against the modalities uh, and the ideas, say, from Layard that are pushing out, that are managing what should be one of the last subversive spaces. We all believe that, Surely, rather than getting someone to do the 20th IPA on X, we should be able to get people empowered enough so that when they have a document going, this is the right choice and the right therapy, they can kind of critically engage with that. Surely we need that now in terms of our trainings. Um, And I think this gives us a real opportunity, last point, um, to kind of sort of, in a way, update what we do. Journal articles, they are not what they were. The academies are not what they were. Dare I say it, the professional bodies are not what they were. There is a complete changing of power relations in our society, which is very problematic, but also potentially useful for people doing bottom-up things. The blog is the new journal article. I do a journal article, no one reads that. Maybe I'm a shit researcher, but I do a blog, it gets some currency, it gets some thinking. Most important, it's dialogical. And that is what we want to do. We want to get out there, grittily involved, and that's what I'm advocating. So, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jay. So... Our last, last speaker today is responses from Ray, Ray Waddingham. And Ray, Ray's a trainer and consultant specializing in ways, uh, of supporting people who struggle with extreme states, uh, having personal experience of these issues and the labels herself that come with them. I actually, Ray's involved in all sorts of things and, uh, I meet her all over, she goes all over the world. I actually first met you not so long ago in New York. We were very much involved with ISPS, the International Society for Psychological and Social Approaches to Psychosis. Your response, Ray, please. Okay. Um, this is incredibly daunting because I don't know about you, but I feel very full. There's lots of thoughts in my head, and that's not even the voices. These are my thoughts. But then the voices have thoughts, too. How I'm going to, in 10 minutes, frame some of these in a way that hopefully will be interesting to somebody, maybe a bit challenging, and hopefully honest and true to some parts of myself at least. I don't know. Whew, it'll be fine. Um, the first thing I want to do is position myself, because I think that's incredibly important, because I'm not a unitary person. I'm not sure anyone really is. And I speak from many different angles. And in 10 minutes, I cannot represent the whole (coughs) load of the things that I speak from. So I'm going to choose a position and start from there. And I also... So the position I'm speaking from is one 
a person that has been a client in therapy that could technically be called someone who's still a client in therapy. Depends if I go or not. Um, <coughs> Travelling and therapy don't work too well together. But also someone who has been diagnosed with everything from schizophrenia to dissociative identity disorder, borderline personality disorder, dis- depressive personality disorder, which is, doesn't exist, I don't think, um, OCD. <coughs> yeah, I've, I've worn most of the major labels and currently wear a number of them. Uh, schizoaffective post-traumatic stress and dissociative identities. Yay me. Um, But also someone who believes that we can change things. I truly believe that we can change things. And I believe very passionately in the importance of critical thinking, not just for you guys as psychotherapists, but for us. (laughs) No, scared of using the we, (laughs) but us as humans. Actually, I try not to believe my own hype, and I'm, this is why I'm very concerned that my 10-minute spiel will sound very dogmatic and polarised. But actually, I don't believe the polarisation, because if I start to believe my own hype, I stop listening and thinking. So I think this critical thought is so important. Whew. So we've heard from Tom, um, and obviously I was a participant in, in Tom's research, so yay, he did it very well. Um, that there's a challenge within the psychiatric services of medical meanings that can be imposed and accepted by society, and we saw that in Jay's as well, but also the importance of developing personal meaning. And certainly I have been a patient for many, many years in, in mental health units with my utterances, my stories, my, my experiences, my voices, my beliefs, my so-called delusions. I like the use of so-called because to use that and say delusions almost suggests we can forget to do this sometimes and the word delusion becomes accepted. So I think so-called delusions is a really helpful way of phrasing it. And so we all know that the, the harms of kind of the medicalization of human experience and we could sit here in the sort of psychotherapy world going, yes, we don't do that. That's cool, isn't it? Um, and that gives poor uh, Hugh and a few of the psychiatrists here kind of, you can always be the bad guys in the room or the bad ladies in the room that we can point to and go, well, we're not part of that. <laughs> it's complex, isn't it? Because I'd like to, to kind of start my talk on a really confrontational note and hopefully it'll get easier to hear as we go along. I think that I've been harmed more by a psychotherapist than I have by a psychiatrist. (laughs) Not that you can really quantify these harms, because it's complicated. So that's why it's confrontational. Um, But why, why is that? I spent years in hospital and became a schizophrenic who did not believe in my own reality, who did not believe I was even a human. I became a caricature of a symptom collection. And I stopped being part of the world. That alienation was really psychiatry colluding with the abuse. I was number C, or letter C, um, there. So how could psychotherapy harm me more than that, when that's my whole identity that's been crafted around this, this biological entity of schizophrenia? Um, I think it's something about many of us, or certainly I, I'm again being careful of language here, 
have difficult experiences in psychiatry and go to psychotherapy wanting the space for meaning, the space to be heard, the space to be understood and to be seen after we've not been seen for many years. And that's why I went into therapy. And I have all these ideals about what therapy might be like. You know, this, this being with someone who truly doesn't judge me, who will, can truly hear the aliens and the, the stuff and the voices without kind of imposing and constricting that. The space for me is very, very precious and something I want to protect. Did I find that? Um, yes and no. I'll tell you that the harm part first. I very close to this place, actually, somewhere in NW3, which has got a really bad rap today, hasn't it? Um, I was in therapy with someone... Tom's interviews happened in two segments. So I was in therapy with one person in the first interview and with another in the second, which means that my story is quite confused within, within poor Tom's research. And the first person I saw was is a very noted therapist who works with trauma, not in the room, naming no names or organisational affiliations. But I spent a couple of years in therapy with her, and what happened was really perplexing. I spent a long time trying to understand why I was untherapizable, why I was causing this, this nice lady so many troubles. She fell asleep in the sessions sometimes because my dissociation overwhelmed her. Um, she could get angry. She could. Um, she told me that some of my voices were non-relational parts. That is it, would it be possible for us to maybe lock them up when you come into the rooms because you know they're, they're interfering with our relationship? Um, she gave some of my younger parts, my voices, some presents, and would only mention some of them by name, which caused loads of splits because some of my voices were talked about and some were locked up, and it was a. Very confusing. I found myself extremely suicidal and then walking around here to work to go and support others, which was my job at the time. And eventually, a couple of years later, I realised that it wasn't me. <laughs> or at least it's part me. It's a relationship, but it wasn't fully me. And I needed to change something. I left that therapy. I didn't tell her why I left, because that's actually really hard to speak to your therapist about the difficulties you're having in therapy. So she doesn't know this. I did, a few years later, speak to um, the supporting body of this therapist and, and try and raise some concerns and got an extremely no response. We cannot hear this. How do we have a critical psychotherapy if it's so difficult to talk about the overt harms that can be done by psychotherapists? It's a very enclosed system. Who do you believe, the schizophrenic, dissociative identity, multiple personality person or the esteemed therapist? Not saying I'm right, she's wrong, because actually, again, complicated. But the idea that to even speak these experiences is a taboo leaves us in a very uncritical place. But you guys aren't in that club, I'm guessing, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but what about regular therapy? I've had lots of different therapies. I've been in a therapeutic community for a month. I've had psychoanalytic psychotherapy, uh, humanistic arts... <coughs> integrative, which I quite like because it's a nice word, um, lots of different kinds of therapies. And, and what about critical, what does critical psychotherapy mean to that? And three minutes, cool. I guess there's a difficulty. I think you mentioned uh, in, in your talk about how do, we, how do we go on when we feel we can't go on. I'm misquoting you, I know. 
But when you said that, what came to me is, how do we see what we cannot see? The idea to feel that we can't go on with current practice means that we've come to some kind of crisis, I guess, that there's something that just doesn't sit right. And the thing I'm most worried about about psychotherapy is that we can't always see what isn't right because we can only see what we can see. So to come to that point of, can I go on with this, to have that crisis, something has to be brought to our attention, that consciousness raising. And I'm not sure that that's an easy process. And it's difficult because I have those things too. I have biases, I have assumptions, and it's hard to notice what they are until I come into a space when they're challenged. And I guess for me, psychotherapy can feel like a very closed space where, I think you mentioned earlier, Del, that you've got two extremes here. You've got the regulations, which you rightfully want to fight against, you know, the tick box core stuff, which sucks. I, I go with that, the RCT culture. But it's tempting to distance ourselves so far from that that we end up going, well, we've, we're okay. We've got supervision. We've got um, sort of, we can present things and people can critique us and we've got our own therapy, yeah. which is great. But what if everyone in the room has very similar assumptions or at least some things that none of us question? How do we raise our consciousness? Um, and I think that's something that I'd love us to think about more in more depth in a really challenging way. And that brings me to the final point, which comes to Jesus. How do we do that? I, I love the idea of actually therapists getting out there into the world, coming and meeting with people, not just the Hearing Voices Network and kind of activism and mad pride and that, but just lots of different groups and lots of different spaces to be exposed to lots of different thoughts and ideas to actually invite more people with lived experience of therapy into these kind of spaces, to have debates and dialogues and small discussions. Not because you'll learn from us because we have the truth. There is no truth. <laughs> there really is no truth. But to hear differences and different perspectives. Um, finally, I'd love us to question theory. Because um, often we speak about theory. We. Sorry about the we again. I can speak about theory. I've heard other people speak about theory either as if it guides thought and it's essential to what we do, or as if it's just something we do to, that, 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 like Jay says, that the, the being with people, the kind of responding to people is the core thing, the relationship, and the theory just enables us to do that. I wonder whether the theory actually is more problematic than we think of. Maybe it shapes what we'll see and what we won't see. And to know that, as I talk about my difficulties with therapists, there'll be people in the room who are interpreting my difficulties with therapists and wondering what it is <laughs> that has led me to that, what my relationships are like. It makes me not want to speak. Um, and any interpretation that's made, there's been a few today, they make me really uncomfortable because we cannot know the other. I can't know you, you can't know me. We can want to and we can know a bit, but you can't speak with certainty about my experience and I really can't speak with certainty about yours. So I think being really tentative with that is good. And finally, something I mentioned to Tom earlier, I wonder whether we can really truly use this critical space to question our practices. So a thing that I found most useful is to talk with other clients of my therapist. I don't think my therapist knows that I know some of the clients, but we've, I signposted someone to them, we've chatted about it. It's so useful to me, this peer support of what it is to be in therapy with a particular therapist. Um, this is something that would strike fear into the heart of many therapists. And that's okay, I'm not saying we need to do this. 
but it's such an individualized thing. Why is it that, that there's a sense of fear around that sometimes? That it seems like if we do that, we'll gang up on you and like, I don't know. It, it's, it's an interesting thing. So to actually mess with some of these accepted truths and think, are they, what, what's the function of these accepted truths? And to just explore. Just going to drop that bomb just before I finish. So thank you very much. And I hope there's a little time for questions. Well, thank you very much. I realise it's five o'clock, but uh, let's see if you can get away with this, Ray, or not. So can we... Uh, is it all right for those who can, if we could stay for about ten minutes just to see if there's some questions? I know not everyone can do that. So um, some questions, please, uh, to Tom J. Ray. I'm going to go and sit down so I'm not... Why don't the three of you sit, sit up here? Yeah? yeah? Yes. Is that all right? Yeah. Who's going to start? Um, I was really struck by the... Um, so the contrast between Jay's uh, talk and the, and the talk on the Frankfurt School we had earlier, they seem to be completely kind of incompatible um, sort of perspectives on um, <clears throat> on the state of the world. On, uh, and I wondered if there's any way, just this, just this absolute sort of split between the two of them, and well, one of them sort of grassroots in, you know, um, interaction, uh, sort of cy- cyber activist, and then there's one of sort of complete despair. I wonder if there's a way to integrate those two. Just ask them if they can do that. Let's have a few questions from different people. Who else would like to ask a question? Actually, it's, it's sort of related to what was just said, and um, because I think I thought that that in a way, although obviously we have we've just had the previous session, but in a way I wanted a little bit from the previous session in this session because there was on the one side the. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed this session that's just been. There was on the one side, there's the kind of almost the uh, uh, euphoria of the activism that was being spoken about. On the other side, there's the, there's a, a trauma model. But I mean, and bearing in mind what was, I mean, acknowledging what was said about um, theory. But there are just two points of reference that I had. One, I think, is from who says that the truly schizophrenogenic environment is the incredibly boring home. Um, and the, the second is Winnicott in fear of breakdown and he he speaks against trauma he's he, he says not to use trauma in certain psychotic states and it, because the more difficult thing to think about is the thing that didn't happen that might have done and so in other words i'm speaking about in a sense meaninglessness and the part part that meaninglessness and emptiness and exhaustion and tiredness plays precisely in in psych- psychosis and schizophrenia I suppose I just had to get this in. It's a difficult one. I'm probably alienating myself here, but it is something around um, the whole idea of, of, of an industry that makes a profit out of other people's distress. And um, it's something around, I suppose Ray did touch on it in a way, is, is if it's going to be genuinely critical, it's got to look at its own existence and, and re-justify that existence to the people that it assumes need it. Thank you. I just wanted to ask one very brief question of the audience. Who else would self-identify as a cognitive behavioural therapist? 
What does that tell you about what we've been doing today? We go back, Ray, to your point about, if I may paraphrase, uh, ideology being transparent from the inside. You need to be looking. We all, I need to be looking at the fundamental presuppositions. The theory cannot be left unchallenged and untested. I'd like to thank Jay for having given the most perfect encapsulation of the principles behind CBT up on the board here. It's the slide that was headed Metacompetencies. Reread it, those of you who photocopied it. And to come back to Tom and say, I am so sad and horrified that your experience suggested that we, are, we CBT therapists are not interested in the construction of meaning in the room with uh, patients experiencing delusions. If they're not doing that, they're not doing CBT. Do not confuse what IACT is paying for with CBT. Please remember, Layard is an economist, not a clinician. Thank you all. You've done a wonderful job today. Perhaps on that note, we could ask who would like to respond first. Tom. Uh, I think that's a very good point. Um, the part that I was referencing was not so much about the endeavour of CBT or what the uh, underlying beliefs are or how meaning is treated, because actually, I, I mean, I have to say, I'm, you know, it is not part of my theoretical orientation. I know less about it. I can't really speak about it with any authority, but certainly CBTP for psychosis is something that, that, that puts meaning at the forefront um, and that, that is actually something that I talk about in the research. What I was talking about more specifically is NICE's interpretation, so how it wants to use CBT. That's the crucial point. Um, and actually, just thinking a little bit more about that, the objection that NICE has to counselling and, and, and psychoanalysis particularly is because they allow space, as it, as it puts it, to explore. Now, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, I'd like to just come back on the, the point about trauma, and I think that is a really interesting point. Uh, too often trauma is, is really thought about in terms of explicit trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, bullying, that kind of thing. What is much more difficult to think about is trauma on the level that is unthinkable. So whether you think about that of, uh, in, in terms of the dynamics between people that might seem... Uh, innocent and uncomplex, but actually can be horrifying and can be experienced as something that's horrifying. And that, that is much, much harder to think about. So I think it's a very good point that you raised. <coughs> can I? Did, did you want to say something? No, that was me telling you to give the mic to them. So <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Thank you, Rachel. You're welcome. You mean you want to hear us? Crikey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've only just spoken, so there's not much more for me to add, but I think what I would like us to do is to really, really, really think about interpretation. So even using the word delusion or schizophrenogenic, is that a word, um, and stuff like that is an interpretation of a reality. I was had an alien inside me. Is that a delusion? Is it a metaphor? Is it a truth? What is it? You don't know unless you work alongside me and we explore it together. And yes, I've had trauma, but if you, if someone comes into that relationship believing the trauma is the explanation for psychosis or whatever we call psychosis, you're not going to hear me because you won't hear the complexity of 
what it is to be me. So, yeah, it's not about having a model. It's just about hearing. Um, I think in, in relation to the kind of sort of split between the earlier presentation and, and mine, um, there probably is a little bit of euphoria because I'm, I can't tell you how thrilled I am about this stratum action. It's literally the first time that people have got together against managed care uh, and against the misuse of CBT, uh, and I think that's absolutely great. But I think in a way less euphoria because I'd wanted to, in a way, have it as the opposite of the next slide, which was about the lived experience in families, which is of people not being able to negotiate a position of the, for themselves and others. Uh, and that is incredibly difficult. And I think in a way, when we hear about that, um, that can charge us because it captures something for us to do something. Now, I don't think myself that that should be a kind of sort of manic defence, everything's great, let's join with activism, everything's brilliant. But I do think there is a serious need for thinking about play and absurdity and theatre in terms of challenge. What we have is we have a problem in that the responsibility to think critically is given to the seniors in our organisations. Understandably, they very, very often burn out um, and we need to have that as something that is owned by each and every one of us. In the worst organisations where the most disenfranchised people are, one has to be able to have the same argument year after year after year and to be able to do that, one has to have some absurdism. And I think we can have some real fun with that whilst also acknowledging the thanatonic. So that's where I'm coming from. And um, I think this is just, the, the paper before was just the most brilliant supervision for me to, uh, uh, to keep me thinking and, and, and probably for you all too. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> um, sorry, I think we, we're getting to that sort of stage now. Like how can I, our new, new chair leader for the uh, critical psychotherapy group, how can I say no? Um, th thank you for a really good, good session. But I did want to, to refer to the very last question, which nobody has touched. And, and it's a question for us all, isn't it? What does it feel like? And I know we've, we've, there are ways of doing work on ourselves about this, but what does it feel like, particularly when we're in private work, about working with other people's distress. And it's a double-sided question because if we're befriending and we're a helper, fine, but when you, you're also looking for an income, we need to just keep checking that out with ourselves. Okay, thank you. I, th I think one of the things, the, the conference is, do we need a critical psychotherapy? And I suppose it's, it's not just a critical psychotherapy with regard to them, yeah? But it's, uh, if I may say it, a critical psychotherapy with regard to us, isn't it? That's what we're saying. Is, you know, to what extent can we really help find our blind spots, our values, and the way that we're perhaps being unintentionally abusive? And I think one of the things we were just mentioning theory, what Ray was saying, was that, you know, how can we with 700 theories claim any of them? Yeah? Um, so at best they might have implications, but they could never really have applications. You know, I think one has to start with the cultural practice of practice. So, is there anyone here who thinks we shouldn't, we don't need a critical psychotherapy? 
So we should have taken a vote at the start, shouldn't we, and a vote now, <laughs> sort of measured. No. So really, all, all it leads for me to do is, is to thank a lot of people here. This came out of a book, um, a book that came out of um, uh, an editorial I did at the, in the European Journal, which actually came out of a conversation with a colleague, James Davies. Um, that book... Um, well, it, it wouldn't have happened with somebody here called Liz Nichol, who I'm very embarrassing to mention, who, who very much kept this whole project together. And thank you so much, Liz, for that, from, from, from at least me. But also thanks to the, to the people who did the book, the people who are presenting today, who, who've come and, and done this. You know, it's just great. It's a great privilege for me uh, to... Uh, to experience that. Thanks to Ivan and the Freud Museum, who got an incredibly busy schedule, but managed to pop this on. The only alternative to this was Christmas Day, I think, or something. It was just, and I, and I, so thank you for being persuaded to, to move it here. So thank you for coming. Thank you for your questions. And thank you for this wonderful panel and last panel. Thanks for coming. <laughs> also, should you wish to continue, it's Iris uh, Singer, I-R-R-I-S-I-N-G-R, at gmail.com, where we hope to hold future monthly meetings. Can I just very, very quickly just say a big thank you from all of us to Dell, who's just, you know, brilliantly um, brought people together over an incredible career. So, um, and we'll continue to do that, thank goodness. So.